ready to join us for the time of your life? Seniors Association Kingston Region presents a radio show and podcast developed and presented by our members. I'm Don Amos, Executive Director for the Association. Time of Your Life explores how to live with purpose, providing a wealth of knowledge for our listeners on a variety of topics, from health to finance and everything in between. And of course, finding out about the latest leisure and recreation activities happening at the Seniors Association. Here is this week's edition of Time of Your Life. March 17th is St. Patrick's Day. It started as a religious celebration in the 17th century to commemorate the life of St. Patrick and the arrival of Christianity in Ireland. Strangely, Ireland's patron saint is a saint in name only and has never been canonized by the Vatican. Canada's first St. Patrick's Day parade was held in Montreal in 1824. Celebrations were banned in Toronto in 1878 after previous parades sparked violence between Catholics and Protestants. More recently, St. Patrick's Day has been criticized by some for perpetuating Irish stereotypes, encouraging excessive drinking, and disregarding the cultural and religious significance of St. Patrick. But who was this man who lived in the 5th century? For one thing, he wasn't even Irish, but English, according to Salvador Ryan, a professor at Ireland's St. Patrick's College. He tells us that his father was a deacon, that his grandfather was a priest. He was brought up in a small estate in which they had many servants, so he had quite a well-to-do background. And that at the age of 16, a raiding party came from Ireland, and he, and as he said, thousands of others, maybe an exaggeration, were actually brought enslaved from... Roman Britain brought to Ireland and he is working in Ireland for some years before he is able to escape and it's only when he's in Ireland that he actually comes to know God and he tells that himself. Um, so when he actually gets back to England, very naturally his, his parents don't want him to go back to Ireland but he tells us that he has this vision in which this figure called Victor comes with these letters that say, this is the voice of the Irish asking you to walk amongst us once again. So he decides to return to Ireland against his family's wishes and he knows it's a very hard station, it's a very, very difficult mission and he goes back to Ireland sort of almost as a self-imposed exile this time. Fortunately for historians, Patrick did leave a personal manuscript. If you were to actually read the confession and you were to highlight in red all the parts of Patrick's profession of faith that come directly from the scriptures, you would find that there's a lot of red over the pages because he's so conversant with scripture. So they paint Patrick as very much this figure, sort of riding into town, zapping a few pagans, you know, engaging in contests with pagan kings, for instance, and magicians as to who can do the best magic. For on, for instance, later lives, like the 12th century life, you have him banishing the snakes from Ireland. Maybe symbolically of banishing evil, banishing paganism from Ireland. And the shamrock, the first written evidence we have of the shamrock comes from as late as the 17th century. If you look at a figure like Patrick and you read his writings as opposed to the legends written about him, you find that he's a very much a flesh and blood saint who's very well aware of his weaknesses. He tells us that he was a stone lying in deep mire, but that God picked him up, raised him up, and sat him on top of the wall. The first biography of St. Patrick wasn't written until the 7th century. That's where the magic and myths appear, including the snake story. Ireland never had any snakes in the first place.
Judge down in the county down one morning last July. From a boring green came a sweet Colleen, and she smiled as she passed me by. She looked so sweet from her two bare feet to the sheen of her nut brown hair. Such a coaxing elf, sure I shook myself for to see I was really there. From Bantry Bay on the Derrick Jay, I'm from Galway to Dolan Town. No maid I've seen like the brown Colleen that I met in the county town. As she onward spit, sure I scratched my head and I looked with the feeling rare. And I said, says I to a passerby, you're the maid with the nut brown hair. He smiled at me and he says, says see, that's a gem of Ireland's crown. Young Rosie McCann from the banks of the bat, she's the star of the country town. From Bantry Bay of the Daring Jay, I'm from Galway to Dublin town. No maid I seen like a fair Colleen that I met in the county town. She'll be surely there And I dress in my Sunday clothes But my shoes shone bright And my heart cocked right For a smile from a nut brown rose No pipe of smoke, no horse I'll yoke Till my flowers was colored brown Till the smiling bride By my own fireside Just the star of the county down From that tree bay Of the Daring Jay Of the Galway to Dublin town No maid I sing Like a brown colleen That I made in the county down That's the Star of County Down with Van Morrison and the Chieftains. From the times of early European settlement in North America in the 17th and 18th centuries, the Irish have been coming to what is now Canada and Ontario. The numbers increased after the War of 1812 thanks to offers of cheap or even free land. Many of them settled in eastern Ontario. The Irish were instrumental in building the Rideau Canal. These were the navvies. Hundreds, if not thousands, died from malaria. Historian Dr. Mark McGowan says in the mid-1800s, there was a massive influx of Irish immigrants. So the most famous phase of Irish migration to North America generally was the great Irish famine, the potato famine from 1845 to 1851. Um, But really, in terms of British North American uh, migration, um, it really is the last short phase of Irish migration uh, to British North America. So 1846, about 30,000 Irish migrated, mostly Roman Catholic. In 1847, or Black 47, when there had been repeated crop failures in 45 and 46, um, we saw cl- over 100,000 Irish leave either uh, British ports or Irish ports headed for British North America. Now, the bulk of that migration came to Quebec. So somewhere around 90,000 Irish were funneled through the quarantine station at Grosse Isle, 
uh, and uh, about 17,000 went through Partridge Island Quarantine Station outside of St. John, New Brunswick. A handful of ships, maybe five, went to Halifax, uh, two to Newfoundland, one to Prince Edward Island. Those colonies were not affected greatly. It was New Brunswick where the Irish landed and many of them moved on to what they call the Boston states, that is New England, uh, that, uh, that felt uh, some immediate impact of, of, of poor people uh, arriving on their shore in dreadful conditions. But the worst was felt at Quebec. Um, when you understand that uh, the trip across the Atlantic in 1847 was by sail, in ships that had been previously used uh, for regular cargo, whether it be timber or grain. Uh, this was human ballast. Uh, people were boarded ships at Limerick, at Cork, at Dublin, Liverpool, where the bulk came from. And these people essentially replaced the rocks that would be used as ballast as these empty ships would go back across the Atlantic. The trip could take up to six weeks, sometimes eight, uh, if the winds were against you, which they normally were. And of course, the Atlantic currents are flowing in the opposite direction. And then, of course, uh, if you were weak and suffering when you got on, on board because of the various diseases related to uh, malnutrition, uh, then on board ship in close confines with over 300 or 400 people uh, crammed below decks uh, in, in bunks three high and probably three persons deep, um, disease carries. And typhus was the, the principal killer or ship's fever. Um, it's a rickettsia bacteria that is in the feces of lice. The lice essentially uh, lay uh, their feces on your arm. Uh, you get itchy because they've bitten you at the same time, and you in effectively infect yourself. And so the rickettsia bacteria gets into the open cut, and for about a week it remains dormant, and then you, you get uh, essentially all of the visible symptoms, the, uh, the, the sense of dizziness and fogginess, ergo the, the name typhus. Um, some internal damage is done, uh, oftentimes blistering and rashes on the skin, and there was no treatment. I mean, in those days, uh, we have antibiotics. They didn't. They used wine. They used poultices. They used milk. But, but about 50% of the people who contract typhus die. And so uh, we have horrendous tales. A ship, for example, called the Virginius, which sailed from Liverpool, containing all of the assisted immigrants from Dennis Mann's estate in Roscommon. Uh, close to 40% of the people on board that ship died or were infected with typhus and later died either at Grosil, the quarantine station, or later on because their symptoms weren't detected when they went through quarantine. And that was the danger. So, for example, 1,490 people emigrated from Mann's estate at Strokestown in 1847. And we calculate now that probably only 70% survived the first part of their journey to British North America. So... What we have are Irish, both Catholic now in the majority and Protestants in the minority coming to British North America uh, in 1847. After the horrendous year, uh, the shipping rates to B British North America go up, the shipping standards change, and now it becomes cheaper to go to the United States. And that's why the famine migration is short, it's intensive, uh, and uh, 
it essentially dissipates by 1850. But what it does is that it now provides new Irish migrants to the Canadas who actually seek out communities of Irish who have already been there or simply move on through Montreal or Niagara to the United States. Um, but it is a tragedy. Uh, I'll give you the story of the Willis family. Irish Protestant family, likely from Tipperary. There were seven of them in 1847. They board a ship at Limerick, but the youngest child is detected as having the early signs of typhus by medical authorities at the dock, and the parents have to leave him behind, which means mother, father, and four Willis children get on board ship to sail for Quebec. Um, by the time the voyage reaches Gross Eel, two of the children have already died. There are four out of the seven left. Another dies at Gross Eel. There are now three out of the seven left. By the time Mr. and Mrs. Willis and one child reach Toronto, Mr. Willis and the the son have 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 been uh, in, infected by typhus. And by the time we find out the story, only Mary Willis is left living in Branford, the sole survivor of this Protestant Irish family who migrated during the famine. Is this a typical story? No, but it is symptomatic of a lot of the suffering uh, that was experienced by those refugees from Ireland in 1847. And it's no wonder that when you hear stories like this, that the Irish experience then is seen through the lenses of the famine. And what is completely ignored is the fact that 450,000 Irish were already uh, migrants to British North America before 1845. The Time of Your Life is available as a podcast, so never miss a show. You can access our podcast network by logging on to our webpage and following the links. Check out seniorskingston.ca.
One thing the Irish take pride in is a collective sense of humor. Here is Dylan Moran, an actor, writer, and stand-up comic. But that is absolutely true about, you know, people needing to believe in things. And it's a scary thing when you start to believe in politicians. You can't trust them. You see, but we need to believe something. And you're not allowed to believe in religion. Well, you can, but people will laugh at you and throw things. Because it was just sort of decided in the 20th century that religion is basically a formalized panic about death. That's all. I mean, look at the Catholic Church, the campest organization on the planet with the purple robes, gold bits on the side, jewelry so big if they let it fall it will kill people. What else can it be but this sort of ritual of panic about death? Death is coming, quick, put on the gold hat. You see, people never really grow up. I don't mind most religious people. I talk to them, you know, I listen to them banging on. I prayed very hard and then the fairy came. Did he good? Have a biscuit. I only get annoyed when they try and make me see the fairy. You have to let the fairy into your heart. Look, I wouldn't let him into my garden, okay? I'd shoot him on sight if he existed, which he doesn't. Now have another Bicky and be quiet, will you please? But you can absolutely understand the desire to believe in something to support you. You know, I mean, children like to be uh, supervised by adults. You know, that's why children go, look, no hands, or look, I can do this, look, I'm really good at this, whatever it is. Because it validates them, it shows them that they are there, because somebody else is watching over them. Grown-ups are the same. Not that there is any such thing as a grown-up, really. They want to be, you know, the idea of like to be watched by something, you know. Because, I mean, the planet's not going to miss us. So we needed the idea of God to have somebody to miss us. Or at least notice that we weren't there anymore. Because we've all died out. Cause we've, and God could go, look, they're not there. The lizards are doing quite well. Don't good on them. <laughs> but we're sort of gradually growing out of that now. You know, I passed a church a couple of days ago and saw one of those signs to see churches. It said, it said, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Which is a very male view. You know, if Jesus had been Jesusina... It would have been more modest, you know, because it's a woman wouldn't ha- traditionally have to be more modest. Jesusina would have gone, well, I'm quite bright. <laughs> this week's show is the final installment of The Time of Your Life. We began almost seven years ago under the Seniors Association banner, but as they say, all good things must come to an end. Since we always like to include trivia in our shows, that's appropriate. The saying originated with Geoffrey Chaucer, written in Middle English in the 1300s. Here in the 21st century, it's a tribute to those who have contributed to the time of your life in the past few months. Elizabeth MacDonald, Carol Weir, Marion Evans, Tara Morton, and Joe Murray. Thanks also to some earlier members of the radio committee, Louise Bark and Bruce, they were here at the very start, Lillian Dowling, Don Gallagher, Sheila McGuire, and Jim Ritchie. I'm Ken Day. Thanks for listening to The Time of Your Life. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.